beginning to the end, we need God. Amen? Amen. If there's one thing that we've learned in the book of Romans, it's how much we need God from beginning to end. Isn't that true? As we've been studying the book of Romans, we, we began with the doctrine of sin. And in that lies our need, right? By nature, we're sinners. By nature, we're selfish. But because of salvation, which was provided by grace through faith, that we are able to receive eternal life. Not through works. We also then begin a process of sanctification where we become more and more like Jesus Christ. And during that process, we, are, we rest secure knowing that we are saved. And the process of selection, even that shows our need for Christ and that he draws us to himself. By nature, we don't seek out God, but he seeks us out and we have to respond in faith. And we, and we put all of this together and we see that the only natural outflow of all this would be to live a life of service, a life of love. Amen? And when, if we genuinely recognize our need, then, then, then we're going to, to show the love that has been given to us to other people. And that's what Christianity is really all about. Uh, we've been studying love and what love looks like. We've talked about what love looks like uh, when we disagree love in the church. And uh, sometimes we, we might not always agree on things, but, but we, what does love, how does love show in our relationships with each other, even when we disagree on some things? And when we disagree on things, there's really three categories, just to catch us up with what we've been studying through uh, chapter 14 and into chapter 15. Uh, there, are, there are things we disagree on that are just clearly wrong, and there are things that are clearly right. And the answer to that is just to go to Scripture and find out what the Scripture says, and we don't do what's wrong, and we do what's right. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But there's also this third category of disputable issues and, and things like that, that, uh, that you can build an argument one way or the other and people disagree on these things. And, and so as we work through those kinds of issues, we found three basic applications. The first one was to be, anyone remember it? Be convinced. Someone said it, be convinced in your own mind. In other words, make sure it actually fits in that, co- that category and make sure that you're in a place in your life where there, that if you're going to participate in, in one type of action in this disputable issues category, make sure that you can do that with a clear conscience before God. Make sure that it's not going to hinder your relationship with God. The second one is don't judge and don't despise. Don't judge those who tend to have a more liberating interpretation of a scripture than you. And don't despise those who have a less liberating or a more stricter view uh, we have to get along. And what's interesting to me is that Paul takes some, some illustrations that were going on in their day, and he doesn't come out and give them the answers. He doesn't say who was right and who was wrong, he, because what was more important was how they treated each other when they disagreed. Isn't that even sometimes more important than, than who's right and who's wrong? And you can have big disagreements over the silliest things. I, I've heard stories uh, before of, of even couples who have, who have split apart and then years go by and they think, but I've always loved this person. And, and what were we fighting for? Have you ever asked yourself that with any friend or a relative? What, what, was, what were we fighting for again? I remember we're fighting. And we fight over the silliest little things. And, uh, and Paul is addressing here how we deal with disagreements, how we deal with those kinds of things. And then the third thing, we spent two weeks on this, do not be a stumbling block. Do not be a stumbling block. So last week we further defined what, what it uh, meant to be a stumbling block and we, we talked about uh, when we can indulge in our liberties and when we should surrender our liberties for the sake of our brothers if it's going to cause damage to them. And, and so if, if something that is, is, is 
I can, it was a clear conscience to do it in my own mind, but it's going to cause one of my brothers to, to have damage or cause them to participate in something they can't do in faith. That is sin, right? And that's where we left off, and that's where we're at today when we come to Romans chapter 15. Uh, and we, and we uh, begin to read in here. And today, we're going to look at two things. Uh, I'm just going to tell you where we're headed today, and then we'll, and then we'll go there. We're going to look at two things. We're going to see the right motive for how we live this way. See, there has to be the proper motivation for us to, to live this kind of what we call agape love. Agape being the Greek word for selflessness, selfless kind of love. And, um, and we're going to look at the motive, and we're also going to look at the right model. The Bible gives us a model for that type of living, and we're going to look at those today. So let's start in chapter 15 uh, of, of Romans, verse 1. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Well, this might sound a little bit familiar because if you remember in chapter 14, verse 1, it begins with, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Here it kind of goes back to that same idea of the strong versus the weak, and that, that you have people who have been saved for a long time in the church, you have people who have been saved sometimes for just a short period of time, as we see when we have baptisms. And, but God has called us to live together in community inside the church. And so we, we see that once again, but it's a little bit different. Look at verse 1 again. He said, uh, we then who are strong ought to, uh, to bear with the scruples of the weak. Now, there's a couple uh, things to understand in the, in the words here. First of all, the word scruples means weakness. It's translated multiple times in scripture, sometimes as weakness, sometimes as infirmities, like a sickness, uh, uh, or, and, and sometimes as frailty. So the idea is you have those who are strong, and then if you go uh, down a little bit further where you see the word weak, that, that word in the Greek is actually the same word as the word strong, but with the letter A before it. It's like atheist is someone who does not believe in God, whereas theist is someone who believes in God. So it's got that negating thing. So you've got the strong versus the unstrong. That doesn't sound good in English, so we just say the strong versus the weak. Uh, but, but we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses or frailties or infirmities of those who are not strong. And, and uh, so that's really what he's getting at, is that we, uh, we need to take into consideration where a person is at. So if you've been saved and you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, there are a lot of things that you know, and then someone accepts Jesus Christ as, as their Lord and Savior, there's something inside of us that says, I want them to catch up to where, where I am, right? I want them to be where I am. And that's not bad. But at the pace in which they get there is sometimes up to the Lord and not up to us. And oftentimes we want to see a person grow and, and we, we can push too hard, too fast. It's, it's kind of like uh, 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 if you watch, usually towards the beginning of a, of a track season or the beginning of a cross-country season and you see some of the kids that are real, really zealous and they start sprinting. And you say, wow, look how fast that kid. And then you go to the finish line and you wait about 20 minutes and, and still don't see him 25 minutes and then you might see them coming in. Why? Because they, they, they're being pushed to go to a pace that they really aren't ready for yet. And oftentimes we do that spiritually. We look at people and we say, it's time for you to go faster. You've you got to be up where I am. And it's just, that, it's not the way God designed it to be. So we who are strong need to bear with the scruples or the weaknesses of the weak. But it goes on to say, and not to please ourselves. So when we look at the motive for how we're supposed to treat others when we disagree with them, the motive is very important. And here it tells us what the motive is not. And the motive is not uh, to please ourselves. It is not to please ourselves. 
Now, oftentimes, when we have a disagreement, that's the only motive we have, if we're honest, isn't it? When, if you think of the last ten times you actually had a verbal argument with someone, uh, were you seeking the will or the... To, were you seeking for, for your own desires or for someone else's? Were you wanting to accomplish what you want? I've rarely seen kids come up you know, to their teacher or, or to their parents in, in an argument and say, you know, I wanted him to have his way and he wanted me to have my way. So can you help us solve this problem? Some of your parents are saying, oh, that would be a dream, right? <laughs> have your parents or have your kids come up and say that. It's just not the way, it's not reality because human nature isn't that way. Uh, but the, the right motive cannot be to please ourselves. Um, sometimes, though, we, we give in simply because it's easier. Let's put it this way. Uh, when we choose between indulging in something that we feel we have the liberty to do and, or surrendering that liberty for the sake of a brother in Christ, um, oftentimes we think it's as easy as saying, well, indulging in the liberty is selfish and giving in is selfless. Right? Doesn't that seem kind of... Or giving, yeah, or, or uh, indulging in it would be selfish, and surrendering it would be selfless. I'm not convinced that that's always, always the case, because I think sometimes we give in simply because it's easier. We want to avoid conflict, maybe. And so it's just easier just to, just to give in, right? Have you ever felt that way? As parents, sometimes we do that. Um, I, I saw a video on, that someone posted on Facebook the other day of a child mis- like just screaming and having a total tantrum meltdown because she wanted something at the, they call them the temptation aisles at the grocery store. And the mom had said no. And the kid's going crazy. And, and, uh, and so what does the mom do? She gives up. It's just easier for me. So she buys her something. And what has she just done? She's taught that kid to continue that, hey, these kind of tantrums help me get what I want. And they're actually training their children to do that. We've all seen those parents, right? And, uh, and, and what bothers us more than the screaming kids is watching the parents appease them that way, right? If you're like me. Maybe I'm the only one. Okay, there's a few of you out there, I think. All right. Uh, but the goal in our conflicts cannot be to please ourselves. You see, conflict is good. Okay, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, right? Conflict in a church is good if we handle it properly. Without conflict, the church will not grow. Did you know that? It will not grow, will not grow spiritually. If there's no conflict, it's like a tire that has no friction on the road. If there's no friction, then it's not going to go forward, right? Conflict is, is a very good thing because it's when there's conflict, when there's disagreements, that I might actually have to do something, like sacrifice something for somebody else. That's Christianity, Right? That's becoming more like Jesus Christ. If we just figured, well, let's just find church. Let's just make churches so that everyone likes the same style of music and everyone likes the same this and everyone likes to have the, the services at the same time and, and you have everyone, so everyone likes the way everything is done. Well, first of all, you'd have very small churches. Everyone would meet in their own home probably. But you miss out on the joy of working through those conflicts. And so we want to be very careful uh, to not define this that that uh, to say that we don't please ourselves is meaning that we are always doing what the other person wants. But the motivation in our conflicts should never be to get my way. And so if the motive is not that, look what it goes on to say in verse 2. Verse 2 we read, let each of us please who? 
his neighbor. Jesus defines who our neighbor is. It's anyone we have contact with. It's not just the people who live next door. So we have no excuse saying to the person that lives two doors down, ha ha, I can treat you how I want, right? Our neighbor is anyone we come in contact with. And the Bible says, let us, let each of us please his neighbor. So when we look at that, the, the real motive, the positive side of the motive is to please the other person. To please the other person. Now, that can seem like a difficult, uh, difficult thing. It almost seems, and for some people, especially those who have a, a very keen sense of justice, you think, that just doesn't seem fair. Well, hold on, Paul's not done, right? Paul's not done. But the goal must be to please his neighbor. The question that I asked as I was studying this, in my mind, was this. So does that mean that we should give in every time? Anyone else thought, think that? Does that mean that every time there's a disagreement... All right, um, I'll give in. We'll do it your way. Oh, we don't like this. Okay, then we won't do it that way. We'll give in. And we'll give in, we'll give in, we'll give in. Is that what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 15? I would say no. In fact, let's look at the verse one more time. Let each of us please his neighbor. If you were to just stop there, I think you could get that interpretation. But there's a qualifier. Three words comes after that. What is it? Let us please his neighbor for what? For his good. In other words, you have to be thinking more than just in the moment, more than just escaping the conflict, or more than just earning brownie points with somebody. A lot of us feel that way, where you can just give in so you can get brownie points that you intend to cash in later. That's selfish too, right? But if, if instead of that, we are looking not just for what's going on in the moment, but we're looking for what, what's going to happen in the future so that they will have the most optimal good take place in their lives. You see how those two balance each other out? We have to please the neighbor, but for his good. You can please your neighbor sometimes without it being for his good, right? And that's what we see with the parents who, who consistently please their children in the moment with everything they ever want. Have you ever met people like that? There was a one family at the church where I grew up, and and. Before they had, the, they had children, that was the husband's style of all conflict. It was just, in fact, he, he used to joke. He'd say, in every argument with my wife, I always gotten the last words. Yes, dear. Right? And, and so that was just his way. With anybody, he was a, a deacon for a while. So he, everything was just, well, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want. And he was just a, a, a would seek to please everybody. And, and uh, then they started having kids. And, and whatever, whatever my wife says, it's, that's the rule. And, and he just... It was just a pleaser, and um, and it was a, a sad, a sad situation, really, because uh, what you find is that that wasn't necessarily good for his children to get everything that they wanted. This is what Paul is saying: Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, edification to build them up. In other words, is this going to build up the other person or not? And so you have to take out the selfishness, but you also have to look at what is, really, what is it really going uh, to take to lead that person to, uh, uh, to edification, to being built up. You know, in that case, I remember when the, the, the boy, they had uh, two kids at the church at the time, and, and um, their, their second son actually said, uh, no, their, their oldest son wanted to borrow the car. And the dad said, no. And, uh, and of course, uh, that was like his first time to say no that I can remember, right? 
And, and so their son decided, well, you know what, I'm just going to take the car anyway. And so their son took the, took the car. He, he was going to skip school for a few days and just go have fun. And, and we lived in the Detroit area. He went down and, and uh, drove to some, see some friends down in Kentucky. But he went without that sense of, of having to submit to anyone because he had never had to submit to anything. He had always gotten his way. And so when it came to speed limit signs, he did not, uh, he did not let speed limit signs limit his freedom in any way. He took a corner too fast, rolled the car, broke his neck, and died. You know, it wasn't, it was seeking to please him every moment, but not seeking to, to please him for his own good, for that which would edify him. Do, do you see the difference? And we saw the same, uh, the same thing repeated in the life of, of their daughter, and, and, and I remember just things were a mess, and and, uh, and so when she, when she was deciding to get married, she was marrying a guy who was a member of a gang. And, and she, she, spent, she had her husband spend their retirement for the wedding. I mean, spent it all. And she even said, the reason I'm doing this is to, in hopes that maybe this will convince them to stay together. And the marriage lasted less than a year. They were paying on that marriage for, for, for many years, decades after that, uh, on that for that wedding. And, and the marriage didn't last at all. Why? Why is it that there's something inside of us that, that either says, I have to get my way, or there's something inside of us that says we have to give the other person their way to please them in the moment? There's a balance in Scripture that Paul is telling us we should, think, we should try to please them, but please them for their own good, for their edification. And we've got to learn to balance those two things out. <coughs> Does that make sense? Do this if you're following me, because everyone seems a little... Okay, very good. Um, because that, that's such an important concept to understand uh, that we get. So pleasing the other person does not always mean giving in every time. Uh, so that's only going to frustrate us, and it's not going to help the other person's growth. I'll share one example. There's a, there was a man, I've told this story before, but not in this context, but there was a man at a church where I was a youth pastor. You might remember the story. He came in and, and, and told the pastor and I that he wanted hymns only. And not only hymns only, but he gave us a list. And he said, these are the hymns. And to make a long story short, he said at the end of that conversation, he said, if you stray off this list of hymns, then I will withdraw my tithe. And, I remi- and he reminded us that his tithe was worth more than our salaries. <laughs> so there would be a temptation for Pastor Dan in that moment to say, you know what, I'm just going to give in. I'm just going to follow the list. Why? Because he liked having a salary. Right? How many of you like to have salaries? That's kind of cool. How many of you would keep doing your jobs if there was no salary, right? You wouldn't do that. So he, there was a, a strong temptation for him to say, I'm just going to give in. But in spite of that, he had to look and say, what's good for this man? And was it good for this man to continue to think that he is more valued in God's eyes because he has money than other people because they have less money? In the kingdom of God, who's worth more, the rich or the poor? It has nothing to do with being rich or poor, Right? It has everything to do with our relationship with God. Do you think God looks at a rich man and says, wow, that's impressive. I mean, God has more than that. God created the universe with his voice. I don't think he's too impressed because we have another floor or a few more cars than someone else, right? You know, or a, or a pool or whatever. God's not impressed. Or if a person is poor, does that mean any less to them? Look at the story of the widow's might, right? She gave everything. And, and, and God lifts her up as an example. She's a hero of the faith, right? And so, so yeah, it was more important for Pastor Dan 
to stand his ground in that issue. So that's, that's what, I, what we're getting at. Finding this balance between trying to please the other person, but please the other person in such a way that it's ultimately going to lead to their edification, to their growth. And that's what brings us to the third point, to edify the other person. And we've got to balance this. First, we've got to make sure we get rid of the, uh, the selfishness ourselves. We have to be willing to seek to please the other person, but we do that with a limit of making sure that pleasing the other person isn't going to entrench them in their weakness. Right? And that's what we see many times happening in, in many cases. I remember one young man sprained his ankle when I was in, in uh, elementary, and he used crutches. They told him to use the crutches for a certain amount of time. He doubled and tripled and quadrupled the amount of time that he used those crutches because he kind of got used to them. And when he was learning to walk again, it, it, it hurt. And so he, he just continued to stay on those, on those crutches. And what happened is his, 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 uh, uh, his ankle would no longer bend as much. It didn't bend as much. And so it started almost hardening in that position. So he, to this day, cannot bend his ankle completely. And to this day, as an adult, he walks like this. Right? Why? Because, because he was entrenched in his weakness. Yeah, there's a time to give him crutches. But there's a time to say, now it's time for you to, to start strengthening that ankle. Does that make sense? And we have to see that in the, in the church as well. And so we don't want to just put people on crutches every time. But we do need to put people on crutches sometimes when there's a weakness or an infirmity. And so we want to make sure we edify the other person. So, so don't be selfish, but don't become the enabler. And justify it as pleasing your neighbor. So that is the right motive. Now we're going to take a look at the right model. See, we, we could all know this, but how easy is it to say, I need to be selfless? But how difficult is that in real life when we have our human natures that are selfish by nature? So we have, we have to look at the right, uh, the right model as well. So let's look at uh, chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. I'll read them all together first. Verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. That you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who's the model for us? It's Jesus Christ. Right? When we look at the model, and if you want to know in a moment, what, what should I do in this situation? The model would be Jesus Christ. Christ is that model for us. And, uh, and that's quite a high bar to put up there. But let's look again at what it says in verse 3. It says, for even Christ did not please himself. See how that matches what, we, what, what Paul had just said? The, the motivation cannot be to please yourself. Did Christ seek to please himself? I can think of multiple times in the life of Christ where he could have and would have even had the divine rights to do something in his own favor and he chose not to do it. The most important one is dying on the cross for sins he didn't commit. Right? And that's what it goes on to talk about. Uh, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Uh, what's, that, what's that talking about? It's a quote from Psalm. It's a uh, messianic Psalm. It talked about Jesus Christ took the reproach, took the punishment for your sins he took them with him on the cross and died for them. If there's any greater act of, of selflessness, 
Well, there is no greater act of selflessness, is there? And so Jesus Christ is the model. His goal was not to please himself. His goal was to please us. So no, he did not seek to please himself. Instead, he sought to please us. What did he accomplish through dying on the cross for our sins? He accomplished, first of all, the, the, the fact that we now have the power to overcome sin. And we have the power to overcome the, the consequences of sin. It, not that we'll ever be perfect, but, uh, but, he, but the power to overcome the consequences of sin means that now our sins are, are gone. They're paid for. We get to go to heaven pure. Isn't that, uh, let that sink in for a moment. If that doesn't impact us, it's because we don't re- recognize the gravity or the, the, the profound depth of our sin, right? But the more we understand how, we, how, how sinful we are, the more we grow to appreciate that. That Jesus did not seek to please himself. He sought to please us. Jesus was burdened by the sins that other people committed, and he bore them on the cross for us. But he didn't just do that to please us in the moment. He did that. He suffered to edify us. See, Jesus is the perfect, the perfect model of selflessness. Sometimes he gave in, conceding his rights for, for our sake. But other times he also drew a line in the sand, didn't he? I don't know how familiar we are with, with reading the, the, the Gospels. and We call ourselves Christians, but oftentimes we don't read about Christ, right? So we need to, to understand. But when, Christ, when we look at the Gospels, when we, we read about the life of Christ, we see that sometimes he did draw a line in the sand. Sometimes he surprises us. In fact, I'm going to share two examples. So here's an example of Jesus giving up his rights. Um, if you want to keep a finger somewhere in Romans 15, uh, you can follow along in Matthew chapter 22, first book of the New Testament. An example of Jesus giving up his own rights. <clears throat> Matthew 22, verses 17 to 22. And Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees, and we read this. Tell us, therefore, what, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So you might remember the situation here. And, and this was kind of a trick question for, for Jesus, but look at, look at how he responds. But Jesus perceived their wickedness. And said, before we even get into what he said, recognize how that begins. Jesus perceived their wickedness. What's he doing? He's thinking about their long-term edification. See, he is crafting his response based on what he knows those people need in that moment. Does that make sense? So he, uh, he perceived their wickedness and he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Goes on. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And he shows it to them. And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He goes on to say, When they had heard these, these words, they marveled and left him and went their own way. Now let's think about it for a moment. Jesus is the creator of the universe, creator of the world, giver of life, right? Does he have any authority? Yeah. In in fact, every human being one day will have to stand. We just read this a few weeks ago. We have to bow, every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
does he have to pay taxes to a human being? No. I mean, we owe our job to him. I mean, he's, he's the ultimate authority. But Jesus wasn't looking at himself. I mean, it would have been great for him to say, hey, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm the creator of the universe, I'm tax exempt, right? But instead, what did he say? He said, no, I see, it's the wickedness in your heart. Why? You don't want to pay taxes, not because you're afraid Caesars are going to do something wrong with you. You're afraid, you don't want to pay taxes because there's a lot of things you'd like to do with that money, right? And if we're honest, that's probably why a lot of us don't like to pay taxes, right? There's a lot of things we'd rather do with the money. And, and so he's looking at the wickedness of their hearts, and he says, all right, look, whose picture is this? Caesar's. Whose inscription is this? It's Caesar's. Well, then give the Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Why? Because your hearts are attached to this little piece of metal instead of being attached to God, right? And so it, just give it. it why? It, it, this is an opportunity to just give to, the, to them. And guess what? Who's, who appointed Caesar? Now, we can come up with all sorts of uh, political answers to that, but ultimately, who appoints them? God does. You know, and sometimes he appoints good leaders because he thinks we deserve it. Sometimes he appoints bad leaders because we deserve it, right? But in any case, it's whoever, whoever's going to be elected this fall, it's going to be because God allowed it to happen, right? So if you're feeling like, oh, my salvation, oh, things are going to fall apart if the wrong person gets elected, no, God is still faithful, right? Our hope, if our hope was in a politician, I would be really scared this election, wouldn't you guys be? And let's be honest, right? If our hope is in a politician, we're in trouble. But our hope isn't in a politician, it's in God. And, and this is what Jesus is saying, is, is, is just give the Caesar what belongs to him, right? He's got a job to do, and, and, and it's, it's just obedience to him. So, so Jesus, even though he did not really have to owe, owe taxes, he had every right. He surrendered his own rights because he knew that is what those people needed to do and hear. And so he surrendered himself for them to learn that lesson. Does that make sense? And so, um, so we see Jesus being this ultimate example of selflessness um, when he gives up his rights. But you know what? Jesus can be just as selfless uh, when, when, when he demands his own rights. I want to share one more uh, verse in Scripture, or one more passage, just a few pages back in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and we come to verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the green fields on the Sabbath... And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the heads of the grains uh, to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Just pause here for a moment. There's a Sabbath law. It's written at least twice in uh, in the Old Testament. We have in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, in the Ten Commandments. To remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And you're commanded on the Sabbath day to not what? Not work. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a blessing to me, right? I like, I like my day off. For me, Friday, Sundays, by the way, is not my day off. <laughs> Just so you know. But for me, Friday, I, I take Friday, I enjoy it. I spend time with the family, and, and I, I enjoy it. I like that. And so if, if your boss came in and said, hey, take the day off, you would say, great, let's do it. But... They turned that into something that, that's blessing into a burden because the Pharisees came up with all these rules about what it is to be, uh, you know, what, 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 how you define work. If it takes two hands, it's work, right? And so you, you know all, all the 200 steps uh, on, the, on the Sabbath. It's all you're allowed outside your home. 
all these different rules. They came up with these rules. And so here the disciples are walking along. It's on the Sabbath. And they take some, some heads of grain and they eat them. Well, according to the Pharisee definition, that's reaping. You see? Why? It's just a few grains. Ah, you're working. That was the mentality of the Pharisees. And so they say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So before we go any further, do you see the problem with the thinking of the Pharisees? They were taking a human tradition and lifting it to the level of what? Law. When they say it's not lawful, they're saying it's against the law of Moses, which, is, which was written and, and, and given to us by God himself. When we start mixing the laws of God with the, with the traditions of man and start putting them on the same level, we're in trouble, right? We are in deep trouble. And so that, that's the problem that was coming into this. So they came in with, with, with wrong questions. Their questions exposed the wrong thinking. Let's continue. Verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read David? Or what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. Goes on. He, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were, for the, uh, were with him, but only for the priests. So he's taking the scriptures that the Pharisees loved so much, and he's using it right back on them. What about David? You guys love David. What about the story where David was in great need? He and his, his soldiers were starving. They had no food. They got to, they got to the house of God and they ate the, the, the bread that was reserved for the priests on the table of showbread. And did God punish them for that? Was, it, was that considered sin? He's taking their theology and using their own scriptures to make them rethink everything goes on to say in verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are, and are blameless? They say, wait a minute. What's he talking about here? Well, if you follow the, the pharisaical laws of Sabbath, everything that the Bible commands the priests to do on the Sabbath, wouldn't that be profanity too? I mean, who works on, on the Sabbath day? The priests do, Right? So, so I work on Sundays, right? So you look at this and you say, all those things, but weren't, does the Bible say that they're blameless? I mean, Jesus, he was a master of words. He could, just in, in, a, in a few words, just take their theology and turn it right back on them, right? Goes on, verse, uh, verse 6. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Wow, that's, that's kind of strong. Who's the one that he's talking about? Himself goes on to say, but if you had known what this means, and again he goes back and quotes the Old Testament, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. Here, this, this goes back to something that Saul had said when, uh, when God had told him to destroy all the animals in the city, and Saul decided to keep some for himself and offer some of them as sacrifices, and then when he was confronted, Saul said, well, I just saved these because of sacrifices. We want to do sacrifices. And God said, I, I would rather have your heart than to have the, the sacrifices. I would rather have, uh, um, have what, what, what is real and genuine. And it's, I, I, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It goes back to that, that concept that we find there. And he's saying, if you understood the Old Testament concept as it was written, he's telling the Pharisees this, you would, have not have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, how did they condemn the guiltless? They just said, 
that the apostles of Jesus Christ were sinning because they popped the grains off of a few, you know, you know, in the grains. They just popped a few of the grains out to eat. And Jesus is saying, you have totally missed the point. And you have blamed those who are guiltless. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What's he doing here? He's now demanding his right. He's saying, I am who I am, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I tell you how to use the Sabbath. You don't tell me how to use the Sabbath. Wow. What was Jesus doing here? Here, he was being selfless by demanding his own rights in this case. Why? Because he knew that he could not let these Pharisees continue on in their thinking, thinking that the traditions of man are equal to or just as powerful as the word of God. And so Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, I'm drawing a line here. Isn't this a beautiful thing when you think about it? Jesus is the perfect example. And this is what Paul is getting at. He's like, if you want to study the difference, if you want to look at the motive in your conflicts, you, and you want to see selfishness, whether, it's, whether you're, you're drawing the line and, and, and indulging in your own liberties, or whether you're suffering and giving up your liberties for the sake of others, the answer to that is Jesus Christ. This is so anti-human. By nature, what we do, we come to a conflict and we think, well, if it's easier to give up my way, then I'll give up my way. Uh, or if I can earn brownie points by the... Oh, it's all selfish. Or when we stand our ground, we stand our ground because my rights are my rights and don't gone at all. I'm going to keep them. That's selfish. And Jesus is the epitome of selflessness in everything that he does. That's what Paul is saying. The answer is Christ. Christ is the answer. You want to know how to, how to live? Look at Christ. Look how, look how he lived. So look at it. The responses of Christ fit exactly the motive that he just told us that we should have in our debates and in our, in our squabbles with others. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 and see what he says from there. He says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. So all of those things that from the Old Testament, all the things that were written were written to edify us. See that balance point there? They're written for us to grow. That we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. That you may, with one mind and with one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see all the the words of unity found right there? Like-minded. One mind, one mouth, glorifying God together. And so when we understand this concept of love, it's going to be the most unifying thing that you've ever experienced in your life. And that's what God has called us to be, unified. That doesn't mean we agree on every little thing, does it? And a lot of times we think if we're going to be unified, we have to agree. That's not what it is. But we live in love as Romans 14, Romans 15 describes. That is unity. Everyone wants to be part of a unified body, a unified church, right? Anyone say, I'm looking for a church that's really divisive. I've never, heard, I've never had someone come to visit the church saying, yeah, you guys just seem to get along. I don't like that. I would like the church where there's, where, you know, no, you don't see that. We all want to be a part of that. And Jesus is saying, this is the way to that. This is the way to that. Now, this is all, all that Paul has done at this point is laid down this great theological foundation. Now he's going to take it and he's going to apply it to the situation that was going on right then, right there. 
uh, in Romans 15, verses 7 through 8. Uh, we're going to read this. But just to get a little background uh, uh, understanding first, the Jews and the Gentiles who had accepted Jesus Christ came from very different backgrounds, and they weren't exactly getting along, right? They weren't getting along. In fact, the way the Gentiles looked at the Jews, in fact, they would say, well, Jews, they're just a bunch of hypocrites, right? They're always adding rules and making life difficult. This is how the, 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 the Gentiles viewed the Jews. In fact, they hated the word circumcision. They hated that word. I, I agree with them. I, I, I would agree with them. But the, it's them, they look at it and they say, they say the, the word circumcision, why? Because that was a symbol of what the, the, the large group of Jewish background believers were bringing into the church. And they were saying, no, because, you're, because of what the Old Testament says, you guys all now have to be circumcised. And, no, we don't. And this was the big argument was over the circumcision, uh, the circumcision laws. Even so much so that the Jews who had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, who were pushing this so hard, they began to call themselves that. They called themselves the circumcision. Why? As if, if you're not one of us, then you're out. Now, is that a unifying concept, or is that a dividing concept? That's a very divisive concept, right? And, uh, and so that's a little bit of the background. And, but the Jews also looked at the Gentiles the same way. They looked at them and said, you guys are just a bunch of lawless rebels. We have holy days to, to, to worship things. And, and on our holy days, you're going fishing, right? On our holy days, you're, you're going off and doing up. And, and so you had these two groups that were constantly at each other. And so Paul now takes all of this theology, theology that he's just taught in chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15, and he's going to show them how to use it. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us. To the glory of God. So he starts with the statement. It's very simple. You guys need to start receiving each other. What does receive mean? He just explained it in Romans 14.1 and Romans 15.1. The strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Uh, uh, the strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of, 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 uh, of the weak. We get that. Say so now you need to receive each other. It goes on. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. Just using the terms, just calling Jewish Christians the circumcision uh, was acknowledging their existence. And I'm sure that Paul ticked off a lot of, of pagan background believers. But not only did he use the word circumcision here, he says that Jesus Christ was a servant to the circumcision. Wow. Uh, uh, these are strong words. Uh, to the, it's like saying to the Gentiles, hey, Gentiles, guess what? Jesus is a servant to, to these people that you're despising right now. He's a servant to them. He, he, in fact, he was one of them, right? And, uh, uh, and, and he's wow, to the Gentiles, uh, that's a slap in the face. A well-deserved slap in the face, but it was a slap in the face nonetheless. But now he turns it to the other side as well. Notice... Uh, uh, how he ends the verse, he says, um, uh, servant of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Boy, I'm sure the Jewish background believers are thinking, yes, this is great. He's calling us the circumcision. He's acknowledging us. He's saying Jesus is our servant. 
yeah, this is awesome. And even, even acknowledging the promises that are made to the fathers. That's talking about the patriarchs. The, the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You know, the, you know the, the stories. Those are the fathers. And he said, wow, we're being affirmed in all of those things. But then look at where he takes it, verses 9 through 13. Um, uh, what we find in verses 9 through 13. It says, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Stop there. At this moment, those who are really happy about Paul's affirmations for their Jewish background, all of a sudden say, wait a minute, wait, for what? That God did all this for whom? For the Gentiles. That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And I'm sure at that point they're thinking, wait a minute, we've got to, find, we've got to look, go through the Old Testament real fast and, and find some arguments to, to show Paul where he's wrong. And, and Paul does it for them. Paul takes them to several verses, all from the Old Testament, all from their beloved scriptures, and shows them how God's intent was always to save more than just the Jews. Look what, uh, uh, look what he says in the, uh, in the rest of the verse. It says, as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Well, who's he including here? The Gentiles. Where is this quote from? Well, it's, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 50. And it's also in Psalm 1849, because that same song that was written in the context of 2 Samuel was, was, was kept in, and collected amongst the favorite songs of God in a book that we called Psalms. And so here... Paul is using an example that this isn't just the word of God. This, is, this was inspired by God twice, right? And he's saying, uh, right, from the, right from the get-go, even the songs you sing, guess what? It's about bringing and including the Gentiles in. And now you're, you're upset about the very thing that you want to do. Before we point too many fingers at them, sometimes churches fall into that same thing. How many of us would love to see people get saved today? Right? We all would. When it happens, sometimes people coming in with all the baggage that they have and the different things that come in, and you know what? that can cause a lot of conflict in church when people get saved. And people, they would never say it with words, but they would say it with their actions. They would say, I would just rather not have so many of them be in here. They're kind of ruining it, right? Why? Because it changes the atmosphere. We liked the way we dressed before, and now you got people coming in. and, they're, and We liked it the way it was. We don't like the music that some of the... This is happening in churches across America. And so we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap that they fell into. Um, This is what the whole thing is about. The gospel for us is about reaching everybody, right? We should be excited when they come in. I don't care what background they're coming from. I don't care what drugs they're addicted to. I don't care what their orientation is. I don't care how they dress, what bad habits they have. If they accept Jesus Christ, we should celebrate and we should start helping them from that point on. Amen? And, and that's the way we should be seeing each other. He goes on to say, um, um, verse 10, and again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. What's that from? That's taken from Deuteronomy 32. Now he's quoting their law. They love the law, right? He's quoting their law. Rejoice who? Gentiles. goes on again in uh, verse 11. He says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Again, this is another quote. This one taken from Psalm 117, verse 1. Goes on in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse. That's what the Jews are thinking. Oh, this is great. Root of Jesse. That means that some of what Jesse was uh, father to David. 
and he uh, who shall rise to reign who excuse me and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him the Gentiles shall hope what was the purpose of even the Messiah not just to reign over the Jews but to reign over the Gentiles right to reign over everybody uh, and so what we find in these, in these verses is Paul is just peppering them with evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence from their own scriptures that guess what? You need to open your mind a little bit here, Jews. Now, he's already gotten on the Gentiles and told them, told the Gentiles, guess what? Jesus is a servant of the circumcision and, and he's fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. And, and so you, you need to get your act together. And now he turns to the Jews and he's saying, you also need to get your act together. Because guess what? This has always been the plan of God to reach the Gentiles. And you need to be excited about them. You need to help them in their growth. Does that make sense? And, and, uh, and so here we see, both, we, we see both sides of the issue. She's saying to the Jews, hey, Jews, it's always been God's intention. And then when we put those together, we see the hope and, and the unity that, that follows in verse 13. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul ends this section with a, a benediction of sorts. Saying how great this will be when we put this into practice. How, how great it will be when we look past some of those differences and we actually love the other person. What does love look like? Love means, uh, uh, as, as, we, uh, as we saw, what does that love look like? It means that I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about the other person. But not just the other person in the moment. I'm thinking about what's their ultimate edification, what's going to lead to that. And our model is Jesus Christ, who never sought to please himself, always sought to please other people. And he did it for our own benefit, even when it was sometimes confronting us on things we didn't like. Same Messiah who died on the cross, flipped the tables, right, when we needed to hear it. And that's how we should love each other. We should love each other enough to confront. We should love each other enough to, to bend and flex with each other. And, and if everybody does that, then we get along through our conflicts. Does that make sense? I mean, isn't that, isn't that a beautiful picture when you think about it? Uh, that that's what God is calling us to do and what he's calling us to be. There's a couple questions just for reflection. I want to ask, well, what about you? Number one, what has been the motive behind your choices when it comes to these disputable issues? What's been the motive behind those things? Is it been, well, you can't prove it wrong, so I get to indulge in whatever I want? You know? Or is it, uh, you know, what is best for my neighbor? What's going to help my brother? What's going to help my sister out? And so has it been to please yourself or has it been to please others? Thirdly, do you genuinely seek to edify the other person in your choices? Is that, the, is, that the, is that really the root of the choices that you, that you make? And if you think that the answer is yes completely all the time, I do all the things, then look at the model one more time and compare it. Do you really do it to the level that Jesus Christ did it for us? Because I guarantee you, we're, you, you measure yourself to Jesus Christ. If you have any accurate concept of Jesus Christ whatsoever, you're going to fall short. Amen? And... And do you genuinely seek to edify others based on what they need? Or, in our conflicts, is it because there's selfishness? In my premarital counseling, one of the things that, that stuck in my, in my brain for all these years 
was when, our, when uh, Pastor, Pastor Pine said to me, he said, Dave, anytime there's a conflict, you might think your wife's the enemy, or she might think you're the enemy. But that's never the case. The enemy is selfishness. The enemy, you're not going to have arguments that, that end in, 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 in explosions or explosive situations if you're both being selfless. And so you need to step back, work together, find the selfishness, and rid the marriage of the selfishness. And, and, you will, and you'll see how the conflicts will actually cause you to grow. You know, anyone who's been married for a long time will tell you, there's still conflict, but conflict can be a great thing, right? Conflict, in fact, little conflict, they become little things. It's just, hey, babe, you know, I, I'd appreciate it if you'd do this. Or, hey, so, hey, babe, can you do that? You know, because it really kind of about, and that's as much as conflict goes. Why? Because we love each other and we grow, and I want to please my wife. So if there's something that I'm doing that's bothering her, I want to know, right? Imagine if we took that same concept to these relationships right here. I want to please you. I want to please you. I want to please you. So what can I do to please you? Sometimes we, we have to take, to say, well, you know, what you actually need is something a little bit stronger, a little bit, but you know what? We, we, we do it with the other person in mind. If we live this way, it will radically change the way we interact with each other, and the world will know that we are Christians by our love. You want to see this place full. You want to fill these front two, two rows right here. You want to get some, uh, some of the empty space filled. We show the world this kind of love, and they're going to come. Amen? And so that's what we're called to do. And so, uh, as we close today, I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And first, I just want to ask, if there's anyone here who would say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I'm not, I'm not certain that I'm saved. I'm not certain that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so he hasn't been the model for me, but maybe that's the reason why. I just want to ask you right now, if that's you, and you would, if you would like to know more about how you could accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you just raise your hand? Don't worry about anyone else looking around. This is between, between us. Would you just raise your hand? Because if there's anyone in here that, would, that needs to make that decision today, I want to give you that opportunity. Okay, now I want to speak then to those who'd say, I know for sure I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But the Lord is convicting me that I need to be more selfless in the way I interact with others. Or maybe it's just simply making a commitment to God that you're going to live this selfish or selfless kind of lifestyle. And if that's you, I'm going to give you an opportunity. We're going to sing just come, at, come just as you are in just a moment. And if that's you, I'm going to give you an opportunity just to come forward. No one's going to bother you. You can come up and it's just between you and God. And you could pray to the Lord and make that commitment to him as soon as we finish praying. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it does in our hearts and lives. Lord, we began to this, this time together by singing praises to you for, for who you are and how we need you. And Lord, in light of all that Jesus has done for us, pray that he would live like Christ. Bending our wills to the needs of others. Loving them enough to confront them when their confrontation needs to take place. And so Lord, I pray that we would love each other with that agape kind of love, that Romans 14, Romans 15 kind of love so that the world will know more about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.